How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer and then we will begin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity and privilege we have to gather together this evening to fellowship around the teaching of your word. Father, we thank you for the fact that you have revealed so much to us over the course of human history that the Holy Spirit has guaranteed that that which is recorded was free from error and that therefore we know that this gives us accurate and true information and sufficient information for understanding what you are doing in history and what you are doing in our individual lives. Now, as we continue our study, we pray that uh, we would be able to think through what the Scripture teaches, give us a better understanding and appreciation for how these things apply in terms of our own thinking and our own understanding of what's taking place in history in our own day. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. Now, as we've gone through Genesis, what we see is there, you can organize all of your thoughts in Genesis around two, two things. First of all, you have four events and four people. Your four events are the creation, fall, flood, and the Tower of Babel. We're on that fourth event. So we think about the first four events. Creation, fall, flood, and Babel. Outside of uh, the creation, which was a blessing. Remember the theme of Genesis has to do with blessing and cursing. In Genesis 1, we have the creation. God blesses it, and all that is good and very good at the end. And then with the fall of man, there's a curse. With the flood, there's a curse. And with the Tower of Babel, there's another curse. The scattering of uh, the nations according to their languages. Now, the second half, not exactly the second half, but the second part of Genesis, which makes up the lion's share of the book from chapter 12 through chapter 50, revolves around four individuals, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And we will get into that in a couple of weeks. I'll probably wait until I get back from my a trip coming up before we start Abraham, so we'll have the continuity there. So we look at those two things. You can just think your way through the whole book by thinking about four events, four people, creation, fall, flood, and the Tower of Babel. Last time we went through the episode of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. The first nine verses explain this. And I pointed out last time that we should think in terms of the, why these things are included in the Scripture. Actually, it was to answer that question several years ago that 
we went through that series on the introduction to the Old Testament, sort of a, not really an Old Testament survey as such. If you go to Bible college or seminary, you'll go through courses called Old Testament Introduction, Old Testament Survey, and it's not quite like what, what we did uh, four or five years ago. Uh, it's similar in the sense that you go through the whole Old Testament, but it's different many, many uh, ways. The reason I did that a few years ago was to answer that very question. Why is it that these events are in the Old Testament? If you look at the Old Testament, creation takes place approximately 4160 B.C., That is, if there are no gaps in the genealogies, I don't believe there are gaps in the genealogies. We'll look at that again next time when we get into the second part of Genesis chapter 11. But if there are no gaps in the genealogy, then the creation week in Genesis 1, verses 2 through the end of the chapter, take place at 4160 B.C. The flood takes place about... 1,656 years later, and approximately uh, 2550 uh, B.C., plus or minus a few years. And that's when the flood takes place. And then you have the call of Abraham, or actually the birth of Abraham, is in 2166 B.C. So you have a period of time covered in Genesis 1 through 11 that covers virtually 2,000 years of history in 11 chapters. Now, there's a whole lot of things that happened in those 2,000 years that aren't recorded in those 11 chapters. I mean, that's just about maybe 15 or 20 pages in most Bibles. So we have very little information given to us. Why does the Holy Spirit tell us the things that he tells us? We focused on the episode with Noah's drunkenness of all the things Noah did following the flood. He lived for several hundred years after the flood. Why is it that that's the only thing that the Holy Spirit tells us? It has a significance. It has a purpose. It is picked out by the Holy Spirit because it is going to show the trends of the descendants of each of his three sons. And then after the flood between the period of the flood, which is approximately uh, 1550. The, the, yeah, the flood's about 1550 B.C. to 2166 to Abraham is again a period of just le- under 500 years, about 400 years, 350 to 400 years. And the only thing that we're told about in that period of time is the Tower of Babel. Now, why is that significant? Of all the things that happened, of all the accomplishments of Japheth and Shem and Ham during that period, and all the accomplishments of their descendants in founding the great civilizations, they founded the civilization of Sumer, the civilization of Egypt, civilization in uh, the Hittite Empire up in the area of modern Turkey, the early uh, Indo-European Nations are all established during that period of time. Why is it that the only thing that God tells us about is the Tower of Babel? Not only that, but once you get into Abraham and you go from 2166 down to 1446, which again is a period of about 700 years, 
720 years to the Exodus. Why is it that the only thing that we're told about in that time is specifics on Abraham's family? And we need to think about that when we get into the second part of Genesis. Why is it that of all the things that are taking place around the earth, you have expansion of Japhetic tribes all throughout Western Europe, you have the expansion of Hamitic descendants down through Africa, you have the flowering of the great civilizations of uh, Babylon, uh, Samaria, Egypt. Why is it that we just focus on what's happening in this little tiny corner of the world in Canaan and you focus on one family, the, the Abraham and his descendants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And then we go down to the time of Christ, which covers that basic period of about 1,500 years, 1400, from 1446 B.C. down to uh, 90, roughly 95 A.D. when Revelation is wit- written. But in the Old Testament, we go from 1446 B.C. to 400 B.C., a period of 1,000 years. And again, we're not told a whole lot, but we're told a whole lot more about what's going on than we did before. Again, you have to ask that question, what is it about these events that God wants us to understand? What is it about these events? Because for every detail that God's telling us, for every event in history, He's excluding tens of thousands of things that are going on in human history. That perhaps if you were to go back and read the uh, newspapers of the day for whatever or whatever passed for uh, news reporting at those times, these events probably wouldn't be told in the way they're told in the Bible. That ought to be a big clue right there. And these individuals' names probably wouldn't be mentioned. Of course, that's we know that because in archaeology we have very little evidence of the existence of most biblical uh, figures. Uh, recently, within the last uh, five or six years, there was a discovery that mentioned uh, David. That was the first time in uh, modern archaeology that anyone has gotten historical information of the house of David. It was, I think it was a Syrian inscription that referred to the house of David. So that gave historical, uh, you know, sort of an historical verification of the existence of David. But there's no mention of, of Noah. There's no mention of Abraham. There's no mention of Isaac or Jacob in any ancient document. So these people were not at the, let's say, at the cutting edge of, of uh, history or society. Yet that's who God's working with. So we need to ask those questions. Why is it that these events are included. Now, when we come to the 11th chapter of Genesis, the focus is on the Tower of Babel. And at last time, I put up on the overhead, I don't have it this time, but I put on, on the overhead the chiastic structure of this chapter. And it begins in verse 1. Now, the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it ends with the statement, Therefore, its name is called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. So it begins with the human race unified, speaking one language, and it ends with them being scattered and their languages being uh, disrupted. And I pointed out that, that in the study of language and the history of languages, 
one of the interesting observations is there's more discontinuity and more diversity among Hamitic languages than among either Japhetic languages or Shemitic languages. Shemitic languages are, are languages such as Canaanite. We have examples of early Canaanite from uh, a, a village called Ugarit, which is in the northern part of the land of Israel, in part of northern part of Canaan. It's very similar to, to Hebrew, Aramaic, uh, Akkadian, which was the language of the Bab- early Babylonians, all of these are Semitic languages, and there's a tremendous correspondence to those languages. And I pointed out last time that I had just read a newsletter from Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who is, uh, uh, was reporting on going to see the Passion of Christ. And there are sections in there where they're speaking Aramaic. And he said he had no trouble understanding the Aramaic because of his uh, understanding of modern Hebrew. So that tells us that the, the closeness of those Semitic languages, there hasn't been this, this fragmentation that occurred in the descendants of Ham. Same thing with Japhetic languages. They can all be traced back to a, to a mother language, a mother tongue. And yet um, when you come to the Hamitic languages, you have all the various African dialects, Asian, Asian languages, you have... You go into some areas I pointed out in Papua New Guinea, uh, Irian Jaya, and you have people who were apparently one tribe just two or three hundred years ago or maybe even just five or six generations back and they have separated. They now live five or six miles from each other and they can't speak the same language anymore. That Hamitic languages felt the brunt of this curse on language because it was the the descendants of Ham who had the arrogance to build this this tower. And this tower wasn't simply a structure to try to reach the heavens, but it had a religious connotation. And it was a religious statement. There was, according to extra-biblical information that uh, we pick up from some of the other uh, legends related to this tower. So we, we have to consider the source in drawing any conclusions. But it seems to suggest that at the top of this ziggurat, which was a, a step tower, uh, there were many later ones found in different par- parts of, of Babylon. But uh, this one was apparently one that was built that was quite large and reached, uh, uh, re- reached up about maybe as much as 100 yards into the air, 100 meters. It was 100 meters square at the base and 100 meters high. That's, that's, uh, that's very tall. But the, the, at the top, they established a, a dedication temple to their god, or they dedicated the top as a temple uh, to their god. And, in fact, one archaeologist from the turn of the last century, early 20th century, by the name of George Smith, found an inscription in Babylon that read, in part, quote, The building of the illustrious tower offended the gods. In a night they threw down what they had built. That is, the gods threw down what man had built. They scattered them abroad, and they made strange their speech. So we have extra-biblical inscriptions, and as well as these legends and myths, that 
give validation to the Scripture. Now, they don't prove the Scripture. We always have to be careful how we use history and archaeology. You're not going to prove the Scripture uh, by going to archaeology and history. If Scripture is the Word of God, then it bears its own mark of authenticity. It bears its own uh, stamp of uh, genuineness. What, what is higher? What can you go to above God to evaluate God? What is the standard that you can go to? If God is the highest standard, there is no other standard. So you can't go to history and say, well, I'm going to judge God's word by history. Or I'm going to judge God's word by, by logic or reason. If God's word is the highest standard, if it is the product of his character and his integrity, then we can't set up a, a, a secondary standard by which to prove it. That would mean that there was something higher than God. But what we can see is if the Bible makes certain claims, then if, the, if it is true, then certain things will follow from those claims. Certain things will, will validate it, as it were. Certain things will authenticate it. And so when we come to archaeology, we see that even though we don't have uh, specific remains of the ark that Noah had, even though we don't have specific references to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we can go to discoveries such as the one that was made in north, uh, northern Syria back in the early 70s at a place called Ebla. And at Ebla they uncovered thousands and thousands of clay tablets in the, in the library. And one of the things that came out of this, although the, the uh, Ebla civilization flourished about the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it doesn't mention them per se, but you do have financial records, and that's what most of these things are that they discover, is uh, just the accounting records from all the transactions as the, uh, as the merchants uh, were, were bringing their goods into, into the city. There, you'd have your ubiquitous tax collector out there who's making a list of everything that everybody's bringing in and how much taxes they owe on it. So you can't get away from death and taxes. So... As you look at this, you have people's names, and you would have people who were named Avram and Yitzhak and Yaakov and other names that we find in the Scriptures. So that attests to the fact that the names that we find in Scripture that are located in approximately you know, 1800 to 2100 B.C. are common names for that time period. We have attestation of that. We, these aren't names that, that were used uh, a thousand years later. They were used the names that were common about the turn of the second millennium B.C. Also, we have records of, of treaties, of contracts. The one we've studied in the past has been the Hittite uh, suzerain vassal treaty form. And so we discovered various documents that are written in that, according to that literary structure. And we look at the Scripture, and the Scripture uses that structure in constructing the uh, especially the book of Deuteronomy. And when we realize that, we realize that, that that literary format, that contract form, was only operational in the middle of the second millennium B.C. from about 1300 to 1700 B.C. It wasn't used at 1000 B.C. They didn't even know about it. It wasn't used at 500. You know, the liberals will come along and say, oh, uh, you know, the Pentateuch wasn't really written until after the uh, Babylonian exile. The, the, 
it wasn't didn't reach its final form until about 500 or 400 BC, and they might attribute the writing of Deuteronomy to 600 uh, BC. But in 600 BC, nobody was using a suzerain vassal treaty form. It was a completely different contract form. They wouldn't have had any knowledge from, from uh, of what the way how things were written a thousand years earlier. So when we look at Deuteronomy and we see that it's written according to a certain format, then and that's the kind of uh, literary structure that was used at the time the Bible claims that Deuteronomy was written, it fits. Nothing is out, uh, nothing is out of kilter. Nothing, nothing looks strange or bizarre for uh, what we know about, from archaeology about those, those time periods. So we have to be careful how we go to archaeology. Another thing that we see is that when we come to Genesis 11 is this explains why there are so many different languages. And on Sunday morning in our study of Revelation, I set out some thoughts on what we learn from the Bible about language. And it's interesting the confusion that exists out there according to uh, evolutionary scholarship about the origin of language. Language is one thing that evolution cannot explain. There's indications that human beings only learn to speak during a certain period of time of their, of their formation in the first uh, six months or so of their formative time. They have to hear certain, si- certain sounds. They're, as they hear these sounds, it stimulates certain, um, certain aspects of the brain that then develop the receptors to... Uh, be able to understand decode language and, and to to learn language. Well, how in the world did the first human being ever start start to speak if he couldn't if he didn't have someone to listen to to begin with? And of course, if you look at the creation account, Adam has God who initiates speech with Adam, and that is how Adam is able to learn how to speak. It's not something that just happened by chance. Over time, that somebody was grunting and suddenly they took on, took on a, uh, some sort of uh, special vocabulary and over a period of five or 10,000 years, suddenly they began to put together uh, sentences. Lewis Thomas, in an article called uh, On Science and Uncertainty that came out in Discovery Magazine back in October of 1980, made the following observation. He said, we... We know a lot about the structure and function of the cells and fibers of the human brain, but we haven't the ghost of an idea about how this extraordinary organ works to produce awareness. The nature of consciousness is a scientific problem, but till an unapproachable one, but still, there's a typo there, but still an unapproachable one. We do not understand language itself. Indeed, language is so incomprehensible a problem that the language we use for discussing the matter is itself becoming incomprehensible. See, this is the admission of an evolutionist. And see how that fits into postmodernism? See, we can't understand what people say anymore because you have to deconstruct it so what you... What I think you mean by what you say, you don't mean by what you say, and I have to figure out, you know, what all of your your patriarchal, uh, anti, 
feminist, uh, anti, uh, you know, homosexual biases are, so I can deconstruct everything and figure out what you really say. So we have a complete breakdown in communication. So they say we can't understand language, the, the, the language we use, much less trying to figure out language itself and where it came from. Ralph Linton, in his book, The Tree of Culture, states that the so-called primitive languages can throw no light on language origins since most of them are actually more complicated in grammar than the tongue spoken by civilized people. Well, wait a minute. Doesn't that run just contrary to the whole evolutionary scenario? In evolution, things are supposed to move from the simple to the complex. But here we have more primitive languages that are much more complicated, complex, than the languages that are spoken by civilized people. See, language doesn't fit the presuppositions of of evolution. That's not the only thing. Uh, The Bible, as we study the Scripture, what we see is that things move from a complexity to a simplicity. Things break down, and that's the second law of thermodynamics. Things are constantly moving into a state of of disuse. Energy moves from a state of usability to entropy. And so things are constantly moving to a state of disorder. Just look at your house over a period of a couple of weeks. If you don't do something to keep it clean and neat, what happens? It moves into a state of disorder. It's just the natural uh, process. So as we look at many different things, instead of seeing the, the evolutionary claim that you move from the simple... Uh, to the complex, it goes just the other way. If you go to any history, especially history of religion textbook or a sociology textbook in any college or university classroom, you will find that, that religion has gone through the same kind of, of uh, development or evolution. At least that's the claim. And the claim is that early man was, first of all, they had... When they began to develop a religious consciousness, they were involved in primitive religions such as spiritism and animism and ancestor worship, these things. Then they moved up the uh, evolutionary ladder and became a little more sophisticated, and they began to get into uh, other kinds of religions such as Hinduism, Buddhism, things where they were worshiping many gods. You had polytheism, and then you move from polytheism to... Uh, eventually monotheism. And when I was in my first year of college, I had a uh, professor in Western civilization that when we got to Moses, or when we were dealing with ancient Egypt, he taught, and we had various readings that substantiated this, taught that monotheism was actually uh, invented by, I think one title for him was Amenhotep IV, but he's otherwise known as Akhenaten. Uh, Egyptian pharaoh that, uh, that lived about 1200 B.C. And he worshipped the sun god. He basically did away with all of the other gods and goddesses in the Egyptian pantheon and elevated the Aton, the sun god, to the place as the only god. That was the only one you'd worship. And thus we finally have monotheism uh, discovered in, in history. So, you, you have, But this is completely false. And it's uh, one of the best ways to reject a position is to ignore any any work that's done to substantiate it. But back during the 
1920s, there was a Frenchman by the name of Wilhelm Schmidt. Uh, I don't know how he got a name, ger- good German name like that for a, for a Frenchman. But he was a Jesuit priest, and he was an anthropologist. And he published the definitive work on the subject in the, back in the 20s that was a study of the origins and development of monotheism. And what he discovered, and he looked at every ancient uh, people group and tribal group from the Stone Age tribes down in uh, the islands in, in uh, Asia, Oceania, Irianjaya, uh, that area to South America, Africa, everywhere in the world. He traced the history of these religious gro- these religions, whether they were Egyptian, Mesopotamian, whether they were Norwegian, Celtic, whatever they were, he traced them all back. And ultimately, they all went back to a time when there was one and only one God. And this fits what the Scripture says, is when, they, when Noah and his sons got off the ark, they worshipped the one and only one God. But as the generations went by, they began to worship the creation rather than the Creator, which is what Romans uh, 1 tells us. And so they, they began to develop other gods. And so what you see is a deterioration, not an evolution. You see a de- devolution, a movement from monotheism to polytheism to animism and spiritism and demonism. So everything moves that. And I think where it all b- developed, where it all began was at the Tower of Babel when it, uh, let's just say, began in all uh, earnestness or seriousness. And with that, you have the breakdown of language. George Gaylord Simpson, who's another uh, very well-known evolutionist, observed that human language is absolutely distinct from any system of communication in other language in, in other animals. Notice his assumption that we're animals as well. That's that's his. You got to watch for those things. We are not animals. We're human beings. But th- this is his observation from a from an evolutionist framework. Human language is absolutely distinct from any system of communication with other animals. It is unlikely that we will ever know just when and how our ancestors began to speak. Human language completely destroys the whole theory of evolution. And we have an explanation that fits all the historical data in Genesis chapter Eleven, that it is because of man's rebellion against God that God establishes these distinctions, these language distinctions, in order to preserve the human race. Because as long as they stay where they are, they were in rebellion against God and they were violating the mandate, which was to multiply and fill the earth, which was part of the Noahic covenant. So God is going to scatter the languages and develop these different languages in order to uh, cause the human race to, to scatter. And what I believe happened, there's different theories, different views from a creationist standpoint, but I believe that what you have is a situation where the entire human race has uh, basically one gene pool. And that gene pool has the genetic uh, tendencies towards uh, white races, brown, black, 
uh, yellow, the Asian races. Am I missing any? White, brown, black, yellow, I think that covers it. That, that this, but up until you come to the Tower of Babel, you don't have any mechanism for isolating people into subgroups where certain genes will begin to surface, certain genetic traits will begin to surface and dominate. But once you, God comes along and, and he takes this group of people and gives them one language, this group of people and gives them another language, this group of people and gives them another language, this group of people and they have another language. And when this group gets their language, let's say they're speaking some Chinese, uh, proto-Chinese dialect, they can't understand anybody else. So they all head off in a certain direction. And as those people intermarry and produce offspring, then certain traits begin to develop in terms, terms of pigmentation, uh, hair, eyes, things of that nature. And God, of course, being omniscient, would be able to give that Chinese, proto-Chinese dialect to all the people who had those specific latent traits so that once they all started speaking the same language, then those traits would begin to predominate over a period of several generations. Then you have another group over here, and they're speaking some uh, proto-African dialect. And God gave a number of those people so that as they separated out over a period of time, their skin began to darken, and they began to take on certain physiological traits in terms of eyes, hair, pigmentation, uh, things, uh, uh, various facial features, things like that. The same thing with the um, Caucasians. And then as those groups develop different subgroups, you would have different divisions. For example, you, you look at a Frenchman, <coughs> and there are certain, certain physiological traits that would distinguish him from someone who was a, a Slav. It's, it's very interesting when you go over to some of these countries where, they're, where they don't have a lot of races, where they don't have the, the mixture that we have in America. And uh, uh, you go over to, uh, when, whenever I fly over to Russia, once I change planes in wherever I'm changing planes, Amsterdam or Frankfurt, and get on that plane that goes into Russia, you can tell you're now with a pretty homogenous people group. They all look like Slavs. What was interesting this last trip was we flew into St. Petersburg. Now, St. Petersburg has a strong influence from both German as well as, as, as the, the Swedish and Scandinavians. So they don't have the same facial features that the Slavs do, and they're, they're more blue-eyed and have a tendency towards being blonde. And you could really tell a difference between how people tended to look in St. Petersburg versus Moscow versus down in Ukraine. And just these different tendencies uh, grew out of these, I believe, were generated by this ethnic isolation. So when people ask, where did the races come from? If God just created Adam and Eve, I believe this is where these developed. Now, there are other views. There is uh, the, the view that was popular among the Euhemerists, 
and I've spoken about them several times in the past uh, few lessons. This was a group of, of Christian scholars over a period of several hundred years who sought to, uh, I, sought to study the early history and descendants of Noah and tried to identify them with historical figures. And according to their view, uh, each of the... And there's a certain amount of, of um, archaeological evidence that may support this. And I'm certainly willing to be corrected on, on uh, the view I just suggested. But according to this view, you had Noah, you had Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Now, we have four different racial types. And so we have Noah is married to, let's say, I, I can't remember how, how they split it up, but you have the, the white matriarch. Ham was married to the black matriarch. Shem is married to the brown matriarch. And Japheth is married to the, um, let's say, the yellow matriarch. Actually, you would have to, to change those around a little bit. But that was... Um, or uh, perhaps you'd have Noah's married to the yellow matriarch and Japheth to the white matriarch. And so it was through the wives of Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth that you have the breakdown into the various uh, uh, races, the various uh, ethnic groups. But however it happened, it comes out of Noah because the, the human race is united. We don't just all go back to Noah. We all, I mean, to Adam we all go back to Noah. Now, let's, what's the application from chapter 11? I think it's very important to understand the application today because it flies right in the face of some, some things that have become uh, accepted as normative by most people today. If you're under the age of 30, and I think this would probably apply to, would also apply to a lot of people over the age of 30. But if you're under the age of 30, you have grown up in a society that doesn't question the existence of the UN, the United Nations. It just doesn't. A few weeks ago, I brought in on uh, Sunday morning the Newsweek article that was done on Tim LaHaye and the Left Behind series. And in that article, the Newsweek author uh, is describing the basic uh, plot structure of the Left Behind books. And he points out that, uh, that you, you see a lot of uh, Tim LaHaye's and um, uh, I forget the co-authors, Jan, uh, Jenkins. You see, see a lot of their, Jerry Jenkins, you see a lot of their political philosophy because the UN is the bad guy. And they're completely against internationalism. And the way the author writes that is he just has no clue. He cannot understand why they would have any problem with the U.N. or the or international cooperation. He just looks at that as some sort of Neanderthal or prehistoric uh, antiquated viewpoint. Who are these throwbacks? And I remember when I was uh, a young uh, a young boy as well as when I was a teenager growing up. Maybe it had something to do with growing up in Texas because Texans are just naturally independent and, and proud of it. But, you know, even that's changed in Texas in recent years because of the influence and influx of people who, who aren't Texans bringing in all this postmodern thought. It affects everybody. 
but we were just, I was just taught that the UN was uh, one of the worst possible things that people could be involved in. It's internationalism. It's evil. It goes back to the League of Nations. But see, man wants to uh, orient himself around the concept of the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God. And these were ideas that, that came out of religious liberalism. If you read uh, back the, in the liberal theology of the late 19th century, this is the big thing. The fatherhood of God, he's everybody's father. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that unbelievers are of their father, the devil. In John 8, Jesus challenges the uh, Pharisees, and he says, you're of your father, the devil. I remember the first time I taught that as a pastor in my first church, it was news to some people. They had never heard that before, that, that God wasn't the father of everybody. He's only the father of everybody in the sense that he's the creator but he is not the personal father of anyone other than believers. And everyone else is considered a child of the devil, child of Satan. So that doesn't mean they're necessarily demon-possessed, but they are uh, operating on what's called cosmic thinking or human viewpoint thinking, which is the same kind of thinking that characterized Satan. So I grew up in a time and in a place where there was tremendous skepticism and uh, rejection of the UN, but that's not true anymore. I was just watching the news today. Uh, anytime there's a discussion about our involvement in Iraq, you always have someone come up and say, "Well, we shouldn't be there because we didn't have the support of these other nations." Well, that's hogwash, to put it mildly. We don't need the support of any other nations to go do what we're going to do. In fact, the people who think that we should ought to be fired. Fired, put on a boat, and sent somewhere else. Because this is, this is self-destructive to nationalism. And this is what is established in Genesis chapter 11 is the existence of what ex happens at that time to simply be clan or tribal distinctions, but what we come to call nationalism or national distinctions. The reason I use the word tribes or clans is because that's the word that's used in Genesis 10, that people were divided according to their families. Literally, it's the idea of clans, mishpat, their clans, according to their languages and their lands and in their nations. So uh, there's this early development where all you have is this clan uh, development, and this is the fifth and final divine institution. So before we finish up our study of this uh, section of of Genesis, we start a new Toledot or section in verse 10, the Toledot of Shem. I just want to review these divine institutions. And there are five divine institutions. I know most of you were probably taught that there were four, but if we're going to pay attention to history, there are five because there is a distinction of at least uh, 250 years in time between the Noahic Covenant, which establishes government, as a divine institution, and the Tower of Babel, which is where nations are set apart and authorized. So what are the divine institutions? Point number one, divine institutions. God established certain institutions within the fabric of human society to ensure the stability, preservation, and perpetuation of the human race. God established certain institutions within the fabric of human society to ensure the stability, 
preservation and perpetuation of the human race. So God is the one who has established these, not man. God is the one who has authorized these so that human society can function in an orderly and productive manner. And the first three divine institutions actually are established before sin. So that tells us something very important, that these divine institutions, at least the first three, were not created in response to the chaos of sin. But they would be necessary, they would be necessary and operative even in a sinless environment, at least in that initial state of untested, perfect environment. So point number two, the divine institutions, what are they? The first one is responsibility, individual responsibility. Everybody is responsible for their decisions. Everybody's different. People have different talents, different abilities, different IQs, different training. They have different influences, but everyone's responsible. They, Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden, and they had a responsibility to take care of the garden, to work it. And they had one prohibition, not to eat from the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And they were accountable to, for that decision so, and, and for their that mandate. So man is responsible. That entails accountability for our actions. Accountability to whom? Well, we'll get into that in the third point. Second divine institution is marriage. God designed marriage to be between one man and one woman. He designed marriage to be a permanent uh, thing for for men and women. Uh, divorce was not something that was envisioned in perfect environment. That comes about only because of sin. And so you have monogamy is the pattern, a permanent relationship between one man and one woman. Once you start changing your definition of marriage, for example, uh, the whole issue related to sodomite marriage today, once you change it, then marriage can be between any two people. Well, why restrict it to two people? Why not three people, four people, ten people? In other words, once society begin, becomes the person to define creation, instead of the creator being the source of the definition, once you turn to creation through empiricism or rationalism, no matter how distorted it is, to be the source of the definition for marriage, what happens? It starts breaking down. And you, all of a sudden, if, if you can redefine marriage to be between two men or two women, then why not between three men, three women, one man and four women, two men, four, you know, why not have a party? Let's just have a, have a whole tribe together and we'll all get married. So you no longer have a standard anymore. It just becomes whatever the individual wants. So there's a complete breakdown and we get into this kind of situation we had in Judges, that every man does what's right in his own eyes, and society goes into complete anarchy and, and breaks down. So marriage, then, is the most basic and fundamental organization in the human race, and the principles for marriage are true for everyone, believer and unbeliever alike. Believer and unbeliever alike, because when God establishes marriage, it's not... A Christian form. Now, there is a Christian institution of marriage that's established for the body of Christ. There are rules and regulations. Those are covered in Ephesians, uh, last part of Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 6, as well as in Colossians chapter, uh, chapter 3. 
But this is the divine institution of marriage, which is for believer and unbeliever alike. Then the third divine institution is family. That God has determined that the family is the place for the training ground of the next generation. Not the church, not the Sunday school, prep school, not public school, not private school. It is the home. School, whether it's public, private, church school, whatever, those are simply extensions. It is the responsibility of the parent to teach discipline. It is the responsibility of the parent to teach authority orientation. It is the responsibility of the parent to teach those children to memorize Scripture and to read Scripture, to teach them to pray uh, for the family to get together and pray together. Uh, This is a responsibility of the parents. They're going to learn their values from watching you as a parent more than what you say. Don't you all remember those things our parents said to us? Don't do what I do. Do as I say. Well, we learned to do what they did, didn't we? You know, we justified that by following their examples. So we have to set a standard for them. This is what calls for leadership inside the family. And the standard that you should be using, if you're a parent, if you're a father, I would suggest that you read the book of Proverbs through about ten times between now and, uh, and the end of the summer. And you could even go through, and this is something I've, I've wanted to do, and maybe one day in the next year or two I will take the time to uh, go through a study of Proverbs. But the Proverbs are not like, Proverbs isn't like other books of the Bible. The first seven chapters ha- have a more thematic orientation, but the rest of Proverbs, each verse is just a different principle. And they're Proverbs and they're not promises. Don't, ever, don't make that mistake. You have a promise, that, uh, you have a proverb that says when a child is, uh, train up a child in the way he shall go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. That's not a promise. It's a proverb. It's an, you have to understand the nature of proverbs. Proverbs are things that are generally true. But it's not always true. A promise is something God promises to us that's always true, based on his character. But a proverb is something that is generally true. And that is generally true. And, you know, 90, 95% of the cases, uh, eventually there will be a, a, a change. So parents can rely upon that, but you find a lot of parents that when their children go through uh, some stage of rebellion or they leave the Lord when they get in their 20s, they're just following their own volition, and the parents then become uh, disenchanted with God. Well, God said if I train up a child the way he should go, he won't depart from it. Look what's happened. God's failed me. No, God hasn't failed you. You don't understand. It's a proverb. It's not a promise. Furthermore, are you really sure you trained him up the way he should go? I haven't yet met a parent yet who doesn't think that they did a pretty good job. They could probably have improved on it a little bit. But most every parent, no matter how lousy they are, think they did a good job. But what you ought to do is go through the Proverbs and categorize the Proverbs. Some Proverbs have to do with money. Some have to do with honor. Some have to do with other character traits. Uh, Some have to do with morality. Some have to do with marriage. Some have to do with uh, work. Some have to do with... uh, uh, a work ethic and categorize these. You can probably come up with 40 or 50 different topics in the book of Proverbs. Categorize all those Proverbs and then write them out and then you fathers use those as an opportunity to teach your kids. That was a training manual from Solomon and to his son how he trained him up. So uh, that's that's just a just a suggestion for 
operating within the uh, third divine institution. Well, that's the family. The fourth divine institution came into effect with the Noahic Covenant, and that established government. Now, you have all kinds of different government. It's not just national government, but in those er early stages after the flood, you had tribes, you had clans, you had families, but there was a certain authorization from God that it was now man's responsibility to police himself. And if people committed certain crimes, then they would forfeit their life. And, of course, the standard that's given in the uh, Noahic Covenant is this is the most egregious crime, which is murder. And so if God has delegated to man the responsibility to take human life when someone has committed murder, then what flows from that is the authority to to govern oneself in all the other areas of, of legislation. But then again, the implication is that it's man's responsibility how he works that out and how he develops law codes and how he governs himself. This is part of man's responsibility is how he applies the principle. God doesn't come along and say, okay, this is the kind of judicial system you shall have. He did that for Israel in the Mosaic Law, but he doesn't do it for everybody else. It was their responsibility to work it out. It just is in the Christian life. Uh, it's, we have principles for the Christian life, but it's up to each one of us to develop it in our own life in relationship to our own talents, our own abilities, our own spiritual uh, gifts, and how we, how we develop that. So each divine institution is given. Uh, you have the fourth divine institution of human government, and then here, national distinctions. God has established these nations in order that the human race can be preserved, and part of it is designed to keep the human race from uniting together against God because that is the propensity of fallen man. Now, having gone through those four divine institutions, we have to recognize that each divine institution has its own authority structure. In the first divine institution of of, uh, responsibility, the authority is God. Every one of us is going to be held accountable to God. Even as believers, we're held accountable to God at the judgment seat of Christ. Every person is held accountable to God for the decisions they make in life. In the divine institution of marriage, the authority is the father, and each father is held, I mean, is the husband, and each husband is held accountable for the spiritual welfare of the home. In the divine institution of family, it's the parents who are the final authority, not the kids. The parents set the agenda, and it's the parents who are to be in charge and running things. Unfortunately, in too many families, it's the kids because the parents are too busy pursuing whatever it is they want to do in life, and they're not giving enough time and attention uh, to the kids and to training up those kids. That's the... Once you have kids, that becomes your primary responsibility as believers is to train them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And then when we get to government, you have the establishment of judicial authority, the right to exercise uh, judicial decisions in, in the matter of criminality. And then with nations, you have the establishment of national political governments and implicit with the, within that is the uh, authorization to have a military for national defense. So this is where you start developing out a biblical view of government. 
because a biblical, a biblical, biblically sound government is going to hold to all the previous divine institutions. When they break down, that government's going to break down. This is what we're seeing in our culture right now. A hundred years ago, America never would have wanted to uh, join up in some sort of international venture. Uh, we were independent. But you see this breakdown under Woodrow Wilson with the League of Nations, but the United States didn't want to join the League of Nations. So you still have the influence of biblical thought that prevented that. And then after World War II, we joined the UN, and there's a breakdown at the point of nationalism. You see the, see the breakdown in government as, uh, and the breakdown of capital punishment and legislation, the breakdown of the judicial system. And then what do we see coming up in the 50s and 60s? The breakdown of the family. And now we're seeing the breakdown, and we've seen for several years, but it's, it's especially uh, highlighted with this uh, homosexual marriage. We see the breakdown of, of uh, marriage. And what, what, what's going on is at the very core of all this, we see the breakdown of accountability and responsibility. And parents don't teach responsibility uh, to their children. So the whole system is falling apart because we are not teaching these divine institutions. So each divine institution has, a, has an authority structure, and when violated, the whole the, the institution breaks down and eventually society begins to break down. Fourth point, under the, fourth divi- uh, under the fifth divine institution, we recognize that God established national and ethnic distinctions and that these are to be maintained. You don't get involved in internationalism and globalism. That's not to say there, there can't be trade agreements or cooperation or alliances, but that is different from the tone of internationalism. Fifth point, nations in some sense, uh, based on this historical precedent, extend into the millennium and the eternal state. Now think about that. Even though nations are established as a response to the sin of man at the Tower of Babel, there is still this national division on into the millennial kingdom and into eternity. In Revelation 20, verse 8, we read that Satan, this is talking about Satan's deception at the end of the, end of the millennium, he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Well, that's true. There have to be nations in the millennial kingdom. Even though Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning, there are still going to be national divisions and national distinctions. When we get into the new heavens and new earth, Revelation 21:24, the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, even in the eternal state. Revelation 21, 26, they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And then Revelation 22, verse 2, in the middle of its street, that is in heaven, on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the health, literally, not the healing. That implies that they were ill, but for the health of the nations. So there is a there are national distinctions even into the eternal state. But the existence of nations stand as a reminder of the sin of internationalism and what the human race is capable of, point number six. The existence of nations stands as a reminder of the sin of internationalism because what happens once all the nations start getting together, 
and the language barriers start breaking down is man will eventually unite against God. This is what culminates in the rise of the Antichrist and his his power base in the uh, tribulation. And that, of course, will collapse. And this leads to the final point, point number seven. Nations operate on the basis of governments. There are many different kinds of governments. We think in terms of our own government. We think that others that do not allow for freedom are evil. But the Bible doesn't classify them in that way. Uh, Some governments are good. Some governments are not. Some are effective. Some are ineffective. Some are tyrannical. But according to Romans 13, 1 through 6, all governments and all nations are established and ordained by God. Romans 13.1, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority. This was written during the time of Nero's emperorship in Rome, one of the worst forms of government, one of the worst rulers in all of history. He's not writing this during a time of of, uh, historic idealism when everything was wonderful. He's writing this during a time of horrendous, oppressive tyranny. For there is no authority, including Nero and Rome, except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Even the Soviet Union, yes, God allowed that. And so there must be obedience to that authority if you live within that government structure, unless that authority clashes with God. The only time we have a right to violate an authority over us is when that authority is specifically telling us to do something that God tells us not to do. Or it's prohibiting us from doing something that God specifically tells us to do. And I want to emphasize that specifically tells us to do. Don't come along and say, well, you know, it really isn't a good, it really isn't, uh, it really isn't good for freedom to have an 80% income tax bracket. So I'm only going to pay 30%. Or I'm not going to pay any. I had a friend of mine uh, back in the 70s that, that got to a point where he quit paying his income tax because he felt like it was a violation of his, uh, uh, of his freedom. But the Scriptures make it clear that government has the right to tax, even to tax exorbitantly. How about that? It may not be productive. It may violate freedom, but it's the prerogative of government. Uh, Romans 13.3, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? See, that's the key. You have to have that authority orientation. You have to respect the office, not the individual in the office. That is so hard for people to understand. You have to respect the office. It is the office of pastor. For example, when we have uh, when we take in a new member here, one of the things that they have to recognize and, and accept is the authority of the pastor teacher. That should be true in any church. If you go there, you should be willing to submit to the authority of the pastor. Well, what happens if the pastor changes? What happens if, if I leave tomorrow? doesn't matter who the pastor is because the principle is that as a member of the church to, to maintain your membership, you have promised to submit yourself to the authority of the office of pastor. It doesn't say that you're going to submit yourself to the authority of Ron McMurray or Robbie Dean, or whoever it is. You're going to submit your authority to the pastor, whoever that is. So 
this is should never be a problem because in a local church there's one person who's in ultimate authority and the leader of the church that God has established, and that's the pastor. Same thing in the nation. No matter how rotten the president may be, no matter how uh, tyrannical he may seem, no matter how immoral he may be, no matter what crimes he might commit, you respect the office. And we live in an era today that where you watch the news media that is so liberal, and the way they go after the president is an embarrassment to this nation because they don't understand the principle of respect for authority. And every one of them ought to be fired if, they're, if, if the people who ran those companies had any knowledge of anything. It's just a sign of the collapse of this nation. But it just shows they have no concept of authority. It shows that they're all out of control. They're all in rebellion, and ultimately they're in rebellion against God. Romans 13:4. For it is a minister of God to you for good. That is the government. Even when you don't agree with it, that's a hard one to swallow. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword. That is, the, bearing the sword is, is a metaphor for the right to life and death, capital punishment, military, uh, having a police force. For it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger. That's a bad term because we look at that as terms of vengeance. But someone who brings forth justice, who brings wrath, on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection to government, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you what? You also pay taxes for rulers or servants of God, even Nero, even Bill Clinton. I know that's hard for some of you, but devoting themselves to this very thing. See, we have to understand authority orientation. That's embedded in the very concept of nationalism, and it's embedded in every single divine institution. And the place where it's learned is in the home. And if it's not taught in the home, and if you parents are not teaching that to your children in the home, then you are guaranteeing a life of unhappiness, a life of problems. You're going to, your little lovely little Johnny or Susie is going to be, or I guess now it's Jessica, you're going to be the bane of every te- they will be the bane of every teacher's existence until they get out of high school. And that's a real tragedy when Christians send their kids to school and their discipline problems. Next time we'll come back and we'll look at the last part of Genesis 11 in terms of the development of the descendants of Shem with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to study Your Word. We thank You for its clarity. We thank You for the way it informs us how society should be structured, how, how government should be structured, how economics should run. You give the foundational framework for these things. Uh, Father, we thank You for our so great salvation in Jesus Christ that it's by uh, grace through faith. Now, Father, we pray that You would challenge us with the things that we studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.